Hello and welcome to the Stock Podcast. I'm Nate Abercrombie, the host of the only investing podcast that gives everyone the chance to hear public company CEOs and CFOs describe their business and provide the investment case for their company. In this episode, the Stock Podcast is really excited to bring you an interview with Mike Garland, President and CEO of Pattern Energy, ticker symbol P-E-G-I, and more commonly called PEGI. Pattern is a wind energy company and commonly referred to as a yield co. Yield co's are a fairly novel type of company. They are very similar to MLPs in that they own and operate infrastructure assets and they pay out most of their cash flows to investors in the form of a dividend, hence the yield and yield co. Similar to drop-down MLPs, many yield co's fund growth projects by issuing shares or equity to purchase an operating asset from a related party. But the biggest difference between MLPs and yield co's are the assets they own. While MLPs are primarily oil and gas infrastructure, yield co's primarily own renewable energy assets. Peggy was one of the first publicly traded yield co's in the US with an IPO in 2013. Peggy is one of the largest independent owner operators of wind energy assets in the US and Canada. And just recently, Pattern announced a big entrance into the Japanese market with an acquisition. Pattern owns 2.9 gigawatts of generation capacity. To put that number in perspective, if all of Peggy's generation was operating at full capacity, Pattern could put Doc Brown's DeLorean through time almost two and a half times. But I need a nuclear reaction to, to generate the 1.21 gigawatts of electricity. 1.21 gigawatts! 1.21 gigawatts! Yeah, that's right. If you got that Back to the Future reference, I'm talking to the right people. In all seriousness, the general rule of thumb is that one gigawatt of generation capacity is roughly enough to power 700,000 homes. Denver County, where I live, has about 311,000 houses. So Pattern's 2.9 gigawatts of generation operating at full capacity could provide enough power for all the houses in six and a half Denver counties. Suffice it to say, that's a lot of electricity. It's probably important to provide a little more detail about the Yield Co. model and how the model became broken a few years back. If you look at Pattern Energy's corporate structure, you'll see that Peggy is 92% owned by public investors and 8% owned by Pattern Development. You'll learn more about this in the interview, but one needs to think of Pattern Energy as the owner-operator of assets and Pattern Development as the company that takes all the risk in getting a wind energy facility from concept through construction. Pattern Development essentially gets a project across the finish line and then sells the project or wind facility to Peggy. So when you hear backlog or development backlog, that's in reference to the total number of gigawatts Pattern Development currently has in the race. Based on the most recent investor presentation, backlog consists of about 10 gigawatts of total capacity and about 1 gigawatt earmarked for potential sale to PEGI. Most yield co's work in a similar way. A few years back, a company called Sun Edison, which was also a yield co, well, sort of, it owned two other yield co's called Terraform and I think it was Terraform Global, became the poster children for renewables and yield co's. The management team targeted massive growth targets Sun Edison's stock price went from about $2 a share in 2012 to $32 a share in 2015. That was the year everything fell apart. Investors started to realize that they didn't know everything they probably should know about Sun Edison, and the company eventually filed for Chapter 11 in April of 2016. 
the whole story is complex and involves some pretty shady deals from what I understand. And, and hopefully we'll see a business case or even a documentary someday soon. But the big picture is that the negative publicity and super negative investor sentiment for yield co's affected the entire space. Leverage or debt levels draw a lot of investor attention, and rightly so, because it's one of the biggest risks when you're making an equity investment. But investor attention on leverage and debt and the renewable space quite possibly became a little bit of a distraction, depending on how you look at it. And growth is a big concern now, given the uncertain policy outlook in Washington. And the other big concern is the inability or at least the perceived inability to fund growth when equity issuance may not be feasible given the extremely high cost of equity in the yield co space. But not all yield co's are alike. And that's why it's a real pleasure to have Patterns Mike Garland on the program to talk about Patterns business model and the outlook for the industry. But before we get to the interview, let's hit on high level financials, industry terms and sell side ratings. Peggy's share price, as of this recording, was almost $18 a share. Market cap is about $1.7 billion, cash on hand a little over $100 million, total debt of about $1.9 billion, and a minority interest of about $1.3 billion. This results in an enterprise value or an EV of $4.8 billion. Peggy pays a dividend of $1.69 per share, which means the dividend yield is 9.4% today. You'll hear more about the dividend during the interview, but Peggy's board made the decision this past quarter to keep the dividend flat after increasing it about 35% since the IPO in 2013. Consensus estimates for 2018 aren't super helpful, especially after you hear Mike talk about using multiples like EV to EBITDA for a business with so much going on on the tax side of things. But it might be helpful to know that management has provided CAFD guidance of $151 to $181 million. If you're wondering why the range is as wide as it is, keep in mind that we're talking about wind energy and you need the wind to blow in order to make money. The midpoint of guidance is $166 million, resulting in a CAFD yield of 9.8%. If you're wondering what CAFD is, you may recall the term or the acronym DCF from the previous interview. Yield Co's have their own term for basically the same metric. This is CAFD, which stands for Cash Available for Distribution. You'll also hear the acronyms PPA, PTC, ITC, uh, these are all pretty wind or renewable specific. PPA stands for Power Purchase Agreement, and it's essentially a contract that allows a wind facility to sell production at a certain price. These agreements or these PPAs are anywhere from 10 to 25 years long. PTC stands for Production Tax Credit. ITC stands for Investment Tax Credit. And just keep in mind that the PTC is more specific to wind and the ITC is just a little bit more specific to solar. And then lastly, you may hear the term ROFO and ROFO stands for right of first offer, which basically means that Pattern Energy has first dibs on buying an asset that Pattern Development would like to sell. The Bloomberg Terminal includes ratings and recommendations from 14 sell-side analysts, with 9 of the 14 having buy ratings on Peggy's stock. The average price target, including neutral rated or sell rated analysts, is $22.25 a share. With all that covered, let's get to the interview. Mike, I can't say thanks enough for, for coming on to the program. 
getting management teams to agree to an interview hasn't been the easiest task in the world. And um, you said yes, and I thank you from the bottom of my heart. It's uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I hope this goes. Uh, it's interesting. I guess it's the age thing that most uh, CEOs don't understand. They, there's been a change in communication approach to life in our business. <laughs> <laughs> Well, so I, I was hoping that we could uh, we could just start out talking about your background and and how you got involved in the renewable energy business and the role you played in building Pattern Energy. Yeah, um, <laughs> thanks a lot. I have been in the business a long time. I think I did my first wind project in 1989. So I got into the business really through uh, energy efficiency and then renewables. Um, Pattern was spun out of an investment company called uh, Babcock and Brown in June of 2009 as a development company. Basically, we had we brought a bunch of offer, um, uh, employees with us, about 80 employees, and we got funding from Rube Stone's investment fund and some co-investors, and that's really when we kicked off our business. Okay, that's great. So what were some of the critical steps um, for you and for Pattern and building, you know, one of the most or probably the preeminent pure play wind business around today in North America? Yeah, the the number one step is uh, finding capital. It supported our development opportunities, but really it was hiring smart people um, and then having a kind of a no fear, anything's possible attitude where we didn't feel that we couldn't get things accomplished. We felt like when if we thought it through, we could make it happen. And so that's really the thing that drove both our development efforts and our going into the operations business and building one of the best operating uh, groups in the country. And so that that's been the driver for us. What were the what were the issues you know early on starting out? Was it just getting investors comfortable with the tax incentives, and and we'll get into that a, a little bit later. But tax incentives, or was it just the technology? Was it because it was so new, or just what was it? No, actually, we it was really um, we had a good track record of developing opportunities, and we had a good backlog of projects, but. Uh, there weren't that many investors out there that were willing to invest heavily in the development side. And by having a good, strong track record, uh, there were a lot of startups, people saying, hey, this is a good market. There's going to be a lot of opportunity to grow renewables in the coming decade and more. Uh, but there weren't that many people that could go to investors and show them actual returns on invested capital during the development period. And we were able to do that. And we're able to attract a number of very interested uh, private equity type investors to support our, our spin out. And Riverstone, we've known a number of I've known a number of the Riverstone principals for years and had a good rapport. The the nice thing about what we were able to accomplish in raising capital is we hooked up with people that understood our business there. Uh, Riverstone primarily only invest in, uh, primarily invests in in energy. Most of their principles have been around various forms of energy for decades. And so they had good access to uh, the market for us to uh, help us with our opportunities. And it also facilitated our 
of being able to explain why we're, we were doing things the way we were doing them and, and making decisions more quickly because they had a, a really a strong foundation in our energy business. And so that was a, a godsend, really, uh, to find capital, knowledgeable capital that could move quickly with us and get us moving immediately. And the great thing about it is we, you know, we went out in, in June and by November we were financing our first project. So we needed somebody that could uh, move quickly with us. How long has that relationship existed? Well, I've, I've known a couple of the principals for decades. So they've been in, around the energy business. A couple of them have been involved, like Chris Hunt, in the, even in the wind business. But we've crossed paths and worked together. One of their former principals was a, uh, a client of our investment banking days where uh, we had come up with a pretty unique structure to acquire some assets. And so we got to know them uh, really, really quite closely. Ah, that's great. Yeah. Um, so, so tell me about the development process and, and just what, what is involved in, in building a wind farm? Well, the, excuse me, in the wind uh, business, you really have to start with the land and, and there's two elements of it that are obvious. One is, is it good land for wind resource? And two, is it accessible in terms of interconnecting to the grid? And then you have to then step back and look at, the the macro features of is there somebody there that wants to buy your power <laughs> and is it a sensitive place for permitting so we typically uh, it, it'll take anywhere from six months to six years to develop a good wind site um, the first one or two years is really around getting the data on the site what are the wind characteristics how complex is the site is it you know fairly uniform over the entire site or or do you have to look at uh, special features within the site and move uh, operations around or locations of turbines around. Uh, in recent years, it's become a really a fascinating business because it used to be you'd look at an entire wind site and say, okay, what are the average wind conditions we're seeing here? And pick an average turbine for the site and estimate your energy production and do your economic analysis to determine how feasible it is to do the project. Now we go in and some sites we have maybe six or eight um, net towers where in the past we'd only have a couple. We may have various LIDAR equipment, others to measure the more specifically where, what the wind characteristics are like, where we want to put the turbine. And in some cases, we'll even pick different turbines for different locations. They may, they're not fundamentally different. We typically will use similar models that may have different uh, blade lengths. Uh, so, for example, in, in the Meikle project in British Columbia, we have two different turbines. One, a more robust turbine where the wind's higher at the front uh, ridge and in the back ridge, it's a, it, it sees a little lower wind so we could go with longer blades and so on. And the manufacturers and we are getting far more sophisticated. So that takes a little more intensity up front than it used to. But you spend, you know, a good one to two years. So you can, some people have done it in six months. I don't think that's such a good idea. But you spend one to two years gathering the data and looking at reference stations in the area to build up uh, 20, 30, 40, 50 year history of data. Then you, uh, in parallel to that, if you think you have a good wind site, you may be 
uh, doing your permit work, which will take one to two years. And so it takes, you know, a good couple years to, to fully develop it. And then it's just a question of the market. Is there an outlet for the market? Is there adequate transmission uh, connection? And so it's a, it's a very interesting process. Sometimes it, you need to be patient. We've had deals that have gone dormant for six years and then all of a sudden the market becomes really active in the area and a demand for electricity, uh, especially renewables. And all of a sudden it pops up and in a year we're, we're building the project. So it has the development cycle, the development business has these short and long and kind of uh, cycles that you got to be flexible and be able to react to. Yeah. Yeah. It is transmission. So I, I don't know if you remember some of our previous conversations, Mike, but you know, I, I was in the wind business for a while and uh, before I was on the buy side, I uh, worked for Gamesa and Clipper. Yeah. And I, I remember transmission was, was always a big issue for at least the projects that we were trying to develop. Is transmission, is the, are the issues around transmission the same today as they were, you know, five, 10 years ago? Or, or how is, how is transmission? Well, the, fundamentally, the, yeah, fundamentally transmission is still an issue, but it, it, it's evolved since five or 10 years ago. It's much more sophisticated in a couple ways. People used to think of transmission as, hey, windy sites are usually not where a lot of people are. And so you got to build out transmission to get a large volume of wind, you have to have stronger, more robust transmission lines like in West Texas, where in the early days it was built out and, and it was a rural community and it couldn't handle a thousand, two thousand megawatts of wind that got built out. So you needed transmission upgrades to be able to handle that capacity. How it's evolving now is there's a little bit of that. There's still plenty of opportunities, like we have a project in New Mexico that can bring a tremendous amount of high quality, high wind capacity, low cost wind into California. So that's a, that's a transmission line accessing good wind sites. But the other part of it is some of the things we're doing now on the West, in particular, the thing we call the Western grid, where trying to connect all the grids of the Western states to allow a lot more flexibility in, in being able to generate renewable energy pretty much anywhere you want it at any time. And if you have a big enough and a robust enough grid, you can move electrons around more easily and efficiently. You fill up the pipes, and now it's just a matter of pulling it out where you need it. And so there's two elements of it. How do you expand the grid to be able to be more robust and be able to move more efficiently? It's kind of, think of it as a highway going from a very small set of highways that everybody has to drive on to a whole region of, of highways that you can spread people around and bring people in and out of that of the highway system more efficiently. And then secondly, the technology has changed where you can be a lot more sophisticated in how you manage and improve and balance the systems. And that's where at the early stages, we're just breaking ground on what people call smart grids and being able to even use the grid itself for storage or regional storage in, you know, you may have a hot weather going on in LA where there's a lot of buildings that have thermal mass. You can use the thermal mass as storage as well. You can do battery storage to help. You can use 
electricity being produced in one location like New Mexico and store it in another location to balance the system. So we're, we're going to see tremendous changes over the coming years if, if the regulators and the utilities and the investors all come together and really keep pushing forward on how to make a more robust grid. If you'd like to continue listening to this interview, you'll need to become a member. To become a member, visit the website at thestockpodcast.com. Members have access to all full-length episodes. So go to the website, thestockpodcast.com, and click membership at the top. And with that, take care and good luck with your portfolio.